Welcome to another podcast from Best Self Magazine, the leading voice for self-empowerment, holistic health, and authentic living. Congressman Tim Ryan, currently serving his ninth term representing Ohio's 13th district, was first elected in 2002 at 29 years of age. He epitomizes what it means to be a best-selfer, and he's an enigma in a world of bipartisan politics. Tim is a big-picture thinker who understands the very nature of connecting the dots of all aspects of our lives in order to best serve the whole. He is a man of the people, equally comfortable standing with farmers, CEOs, and laborers. With a commitment to economic, environmental, and social well-being, he holds a bold vision for improving wellness, education, food systems, and technological innovation. His is a plan for creating unity and opportunity for all. As an advocate of mindfulness, he is not only candid about his own daily practice, he is dedicated to sharing its merits to improve the quality and health in the lives of others, from veterans healing trauma and children improving their ability to learn, to helping fellow politicians become better leaders. Congressman Ryan invigorates a fresh sense of hope in a climate of bitter divisiveness and contention, and is uniquely poised to be a much-needed bridge between conversations and communities. Tim is the author of The Real Food Revolution and, most recently, Healing America. He is also a husband and father who has the chops to get the job done. Well, hello, my friend. Hi. So thanks for uh, sitting down with us and welcoming us back in your home state of Ohio. Thank you. Thank you. I think I should probably point out that you are the first person to be on the cover of Best Self two times. And clearly I'm a fan, but it's not just because you're a good guy. Um, It's because you are bridging a conversation that needs to be bridged. And before we dive into all that, um, Timothy John Ryan, um, is there something that you would like to share with your best self family? Yes, I'm I'm running for president of the United States. Can you say that again? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And we're, we're super excited about it. You know, we think that beneath the chaos and beneath all the noise that there's nothing but opportunity that the solutions for our country are out there uh, in the countryside that are percolating up and I've, I've been seeing that and I'm excited about you know, throwing gasoline on those fires and bringing that kind of life and spirit back to public debate so we as a family are really excited about what's to come. Well we as your best self Family are very excited as well, so we've got a lot to dive into. Let's get started. Let's do it. One of the many things that stuck with me um, a few years ago that you said, we have people who want to be one with the universe, but don't want to be one with DC. (laughs) And, you know, we all have friends who just don't want to talk about politics, particularly in this incredibly, let's just say, contentious um, environment. Yeah. But you also said that we need to bring our practice from the mat and into the world and to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. And so essentially joining the conversation is really not, it's not an option. Yeah, right? I mean, you're, you're, <laughs> you're connected one way or the other. Uh, are you influencing it is really the question. And I just ask people who are into contemplative practices, into yoga, into self-reflection, into building community, don't you think now more than ever, the country needs someone like you, you know, someone with your beliefs, someone with your practice for you to take it off the mat or off the cushion and bring that into the world. I mean, if you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do it? I mean, we need people who can 
de-escalate situations. We need people who can deeply listen. We need people who can see how all these really complicated institutions, not only are they not working, we don't see them as interconnected. I think people who take time every day to get centered and come from that quiet spot, you see things as interconnected. Mm -hmm. And we need that contribution right now if we're going to fix the craziness. And I get it. I mean, totally get it. There's a lot of anxiety. My goodness gracious, why would I even want to add more to it? Well, because we need you. I mean, and many of us can't even have these conversations with our own families, right? So, you know, it's not uh, just about like running for office. I mean, there's a lot that you can do, you know, to be a part of the conversation, whether it's just, you know, within your family, within your community, within your schools, whatever it is. But, you know, it's just, we've got to be in it, right? Instead of just home complaining about it, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, a divided country, Mm -hmm. I feel, needs a bridge, not a wall. Mm -hmm. And it feels like we're at this moment of Mm dis-ease, you know, an impasse, where um, a real distinction between us against them, red versus blue. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you to be a bridge? Getting out of the either or and getting into the yes and, right? I mean, because right. we're asked by our by the leaders of the country, um, by the media, do you fall into this camp or do you fall into that camp? You have a blue jersey on and you have a red jersey on. And we're always asked these questions of the either or. That causes so much anxiety. Why do you have to be for border security or immigration reform? Right. It just seems like there's no conversation. There's in the no middle. conversation so, in the middle. So you're you're in it and, and you're seeing it right now and mm-hmm. nothing is getting done. Mm-hmm. How do we jumpstart that? How do we reroute that? You know, and, and further to that, it's like we the people, shouldn't we be demanding more of our representatives that they need to go to work and do their job yeah. on behalf of us instead of, you know, just isolating in these camps? It's like, you know, somebody's got to play nice on the, on the playground. Yeah. I think it takes the leadership of the president of the United States. I mean, uh, he or she will set the tone of... Are we going to be in these either-or camps, or are we going to break the gridlock and, and and reassemble around some new priorities? And if the president is throwing gasoline on the rifts in society, cultural rifts, social rifts, economic rifts, he throws gas on them, we're going to keep having this separation. But if you have a president that reframes the question as to all of these issues, how do we come together to solve problem X together mm-hmm. using the best of the free market and the best of the government, not either or, we can move forward on this right. stuff. But it, it takes the president of the United States to set that Leadership. tone. When we're in school as kids, we're, we're taught to believe that uh, this is a nation that's been built on immigrants and that we're a melting pot. And yet there seems to be a climate of pervasive intolerance. Mm-hmm. So what do you think needs to be changed with regards to that? We're a nation with a very complicated history. For all of our um, deep values that are in our Constitution and our Bill of Rights and our founding documents, we have come up short a lot. And I think part of it starts with a deep honest conversation uh, about, you know, race, about immigration. My mom is 100% Italian, and so, you know, her grandparents were Italian immigrants, and 
we grew up hearing the stories of how poorly the Italians were treated when they first got to this country. That's a, a black mark that, that affected my family. Mm -hmm. But you hope we evolve and we recognize that those Italians that were being made fun of at one point became professional athletes, CEOs, mayors of big cities, major politicians in the country. Uh, they did everything. So that's the story that at some point the light bulb goes off and says, okay, we know it gets a little messy when a new group comes into a more established group. How do we do that with grace and dignity, recognizing humanity that, and humanity and recognizing the humanity uh, in these people, not shaming them mm -hmm. and, and, and say, look, figure out, of course, we got to secure the border, but of course, uh, diversity and immigration has been such a key component to making America great. I mean, just think about the DNA that lies in Americans because generation after generation after generation of risk takers from all over the world came here. And our gene pool now in the United States is uh, one of risk takers. And that feeds our economy, that feeds our innovation, that feeds our creativity, mm -hmm. having that DNA. And so uh, let's, let's recognize that and say, okay, this is a good thing. Let's remember that. Remember. You seem rare in, in the sense that you don't belong to an ideological faction. This is something that frustrates me about the party system. You know, if you belong to a party, you're just going to vote one way or the other. But what happens to the, the head, the heart, the conscience? Mm -hmm. How do we shift that? And I think that's something that you have been successful in doing. How can you generate more of that? Where we allow our representatives to, to vote for what they believe is right. Again, the president, this is the most powerful office in the, in the country and the most powerful office in the world. And the president has what Teddy Roosevelt called the bully pulpit. It's the most vital office in our government. And the president of the United States has to set that tone. And I think having some honest conversations with the country to say, say to the conservatives, look, cutting taxes for the wealthiest people in the country does not solve all of our problems. And to say to the liberal Democrats, a new federal program or more government spending in and of itself does not solve all of our problems. So how do we come together and use the best of the free enterprise system that innovates better than anything else, distributes capital when well-regulated markets exist, distributes capital better than anywhere else, and then you have the government that can galvanize and organize and set an, a broader agenda. We need the best of both. Again, it's not either or, it's both and. And so the president has to say, look, we got to let go of these old ideologies. You look at the economy taking off. You look at technology taking off. Government's hanging back completely looped by, right. by what's happening in the real world. And we got to get the government up and running in, in an effective way. And that's going to take everybody saying, okay, it's a little bit of, a little bit of both. It's going to take someone saying, we're going to play nice on the, on the playground. Now we're going to have a conversation. We're elected yeah. to this is, you know, well, this person isn't your enemy. You know, the, right. Russia's your enemy. And, and we're, we're allowed to, we're allowed to disagree. We're like, it's yeah, called a conversation, yeah. but right now it's no conversation. Right. It's my way or the highway. Right. The other thing the president really needs to do is set the goal 
Okay. What's okay. Here's the goal, right? Climate. We are going to increase the temperature of the planet by seven degrees Celsius over the next 70 years. We're already seeing effects in our day-to-day -day lives and weather patterns and all the rest. So we've got to reverse this. Okay. Let's agree on that. How do we do that? Right. We're not going to do it without the free enterprise system. We need too much innovation to happen too quickly with a profit motive that is going to get it rolling and scale it up to the size we need to do it. It also is going to take the government to put in research money, mm -hmm. set the boundaries around how do we get, move ourselves away from fossil fuel, uh, but, but yet keep the economy stable. And how do we cut workers in on the deal to make sure that they're part of how we move forward with it? There's a way to do it if you agree on what the goals are. So this plays perfectly into my next question, which is um, how you speak of the American spirit. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean to you? And what does recapturing the American spirit look like to you? Spirit, spirituality, to me, means connection. That, to me, is connected to yourself, connected to a higher power, as you see it, connected to each other, connected to the world around us, our, the nature that sustains us. Mm -hmm. So the American spirit is how do we get reconnected because there's that, that juice, that energy that comes from when you're working well in a team. And we've all been on teams, whether it's at work, when we used to play sports, you see a band playing together. It's just something beautiful to watch because there's a connectedness at a very deep level. And I think when our country's always been at its best, whether we were going through the civil rights movement or going to the moon or going through the depression, what was it? It was, we were really deeply connected. And even when we were divided during the civil rights, why did it win out? Because the people that were connected stayed connected Held. and got it done. Right. And got it done. Now I was going to ask you about connection to people. How perfect. <laughs> <laughs> when I talk about you being a bridge, um, you're a Democrat, yet your constituency is um, primarily amidst a red state. And roughly 45,000 people in your mm -hmm. district voted for you and for President Trump in 2016. To me, what I think that demonstrates is your ability to cross the divide and in particular to defend working class Americans. Yeah. You appear equally comfortable, whether you're with farmers in muck boots, you know, in, in, in a muddy field or rubbing elbows with influencers and CEOs on Wall Street. How is it that you can bridge this gap where you represent the whole as opposed to a slice of the pie? I see that they all have a very, very important role. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about transforming the food system and they, you know, poo-poo the farmers or they talk about let's green the economy and decarbonize the economy and they poo-poo the business people. You know, I, I grew up in a family that had small business owners. A lot of my friends today are Republican business people, but yet I represent a, a very working class district. There's, it's going to take all of us. And, you know, I think what I... Without the labels. It's like, without the labels. Without the labels, without the us and them right. piece of the whole thing. And that can, that can help bridge. And people want to feel important, and they should because they are. I mean, I, this is a great story my friend tells who represents 
uh, Louisiana and he's buddies with a celebrity chef. And he was having dinner with the chef and the chef said, you know who the most important person in my restaurant is? And he asked who? He said, the dishwasher. He said, the dishwasher? Why would it be the dishwasher? You got this beautiful restaurant. And he says, because the dishwasher sees at the end of the night or during the night, who's eating what? And if the peas on the plate aren't, aren't being eaten by anybody, it's the dishwasher <laughs> that tells the celebrity right, chef right. what's good and what's Something bad. Something going on with those peas. Something going on with the peas. <laughs> right. And that's just the idea that we all matter. Right. You know, we all matter. The, the, the people who run the sewer system, that job is critically important. So respect that person. The business person who takes a risk, mortgages their house. Many of them I, I know who, they'll put a, a payroll on their personal credit card because they're having a bad month and they're not going to let their workers not get paid. So to shame all business or to be hostile to those people, I think is disrespectful and vice versa. Right. I love that story. Um, and it's also one of the things that I love about you because you totally get the interconnectedness. And you said recently, I heard you say, you can't talk about healthcare if you're not willing to talk about health. Can you, you know, elaborate with that again, what that means about the interconnectedness, you know, not just with healthcare, but food systems, healthcare, climate change, yeah. um, the economy. Yeah, yeah. So you, you can't talk about, I, my mind, you can't talk about healthcare without talking about health. You can't talk about health without talking about food. And you can't talk about food without talking about agriculture. Those are all very much interconnected. And obviously education is interconnected in there as well. We look at now about half of the country has either diabetes or pre-diabetes. Each diabetic patient costs 2.3 times more than a normal patient. If this trend continues, we will sink the healthcare system. So my point is like, why are we spending all this time talking about Medicare for all, single payer, Obamacare, private care, VA care, fee for service, out of pocket. We have all the, we're having this big discussion. And yeah, of course we've got to have that. It's the healthcare system. But the real discussion is, how do we make sure half the country doesn't have diabetes or pre-diabetes? How do we make sure millions of people don't have Alzheimer's? How do we make sure millions of people don't have high blood pressure and heart disease? These things are gonna collapse the system. So here we are, the most powerful country in the world. We spend two and a half times more than every other industrialized country on healthcare, and we get the worst results. Mm -hmm. And you wonder why the American people are so upset at the government, at the insurance companies, at the pharmaceutical companies, because they're paying and they're not getting anything for it. Right. Well, those systems aren't working, but that's also one of the things I loved about the real food revolution. I mean, I think that that book still stands today as um, a book that people still need to be reading. And, and really demonstrates the interconnectedness of the food systems. And it's not about just pointing out the problems, it's about really coming up with tactical solutions and understanding farm, food, what the kids are eating in school, the diseases that, you know, yeah. Medicare. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's still amazing to me because I still think that there's a huge part of this nation that doesn't want to make those connections about what's on their plate and what's happening in their lives. Yeah. And I know these systems are broken, but we still have work to do in yeah. that arena. Yeah, well, part of it is teaching it in the schools right. and making 
the next generation aware of what's going on, training our doctors. Uh, you know, I, I had a bill and have a bill in Congress to make sure our doctors are actually getting the training that they need around nutrition. More than six weeks. Yeah, they're still not meeting the basic right. standard that has been recommended for them. Your doctor is really your, your health care professional that is supposed to keep you healthy, not just deal with you when you're sick, but talk to you about your diet, talk to you about your stress, talk to you about... Old-fashioned doctoring, really. Old-fashioned yeah. doctoring, you yeah. know, just be there every day. It was interesting. I went to Cuba, not that Cuba's the uh, example for many things, but the way they run their healthcare, the doctor actually lives in the neighborhood and, and like will live upstairs and is always available, but the doctor is part of the community and is always making sure that, you know, so-and-so is pregnant and this one, no. But he also yeah. understands, oh, what's going on in your life? Oh, this stress is probably impacting that, you know, right. making those connections. The emotional it. and the mind-body right. piece is right. still putting Western medicine, I think, behind the eight ball. Right. Not recognizing that there is a connection between, you know, what's happening in our mind, emotionally what's happening to us. You, know, you don't sit down with a doctor and say, so tell me what's going on. And you have 15 minutes, right? Boom, boom, right. boom. Here's and it's your, not even here's their your fault. prescription. It's unfortunately the way that the, the, the state system. of affairs. Right. So right. How, do we, how do we best uh, restructure that system that will allow the doctor to doctor and to prevent and reward? You know, we've made disease very, very profitable. So of course the, the free market system is going to go around mm -hmm. profit, you know, opportunity to secure profit. And here come the pharmaceutical companies and here come the insurance company. Oh, so our system has basically become a disease management system, mm -hmm. right? We just wait till you get really sick and then we'll all go in and see how much money we can all make. As opposed to having the incentives be, how do we keep people healthy and how do we reward companies who are moving in the health and wellness space? Mm -hmm. Uh, how do we make sure that they're profitable so that they can continue to help us prevent these diseases? We'll save so much money. How do we reward people who are healthy? It should all be built into right. the system. The tides have changed in Congress with the season of firsts for women and people of color. How have you experienced this and how do you plan on fostering that? I, I think it's been terrific that the influx of energy from the freshman class, uh, dynamic women uh, of uh, all religions and backgrounds from, you know, it's just been terrific to watch them come together. They brought a lot of energy and I think they're setting examples for uh, little girls all over the United States mm -hmm. of what's possible. And that is going to do nothing but uh, amplify what this country needs to do and we're going we're to need them I and mean, it's one of these things we need everybody in the game to help solve these problems and and to see at the state of the union all these you know women in congress dancing around and having fun and really trying to make a difference i think is a great example it was exciting to see yeah all the white suits yeah and, and speaking their peace i right. mean you know not, not backing down i think that's really important to think like go for Right. You know, you're, you're a member of Congress, you have a voting card just like everybody else. Let's hear what you got to say. So I want to ask you about this notion of church and state, um, where essentially we're led to believe that there is this separation, mm -hmm. church and state. 
And yet, you know, it feels that the dogma and doctrine of some is being imposed on others. And I'd like to know what you would say about uh, protecting the rights, keeping that separate, protecting the rights, for example, you know, women's rights, mm -hmm. LGBTQ, yeah. gay marriage. Yeah. How do we keep that separation? I, I see this kind of simply. You're two things. You're a child of God and you are an American citizen. And when you're an American citizen, you are protected with certain rights that, that you can have your own beliefs uh, and you can belong to a certain church, but those beliefs cannot penetrate the protections that other Americans have. That's the beauty about being an American citizen. And so the government can't be pushing policies, religious policies, that violate those, those human rights, those rights that you have as an American citizen. And I think reestablishing that is going to be critically important, especially now where those religious beliefs can be used to diminish your own inherent rights mm -hmm. that you have, mm -hmm. whether it's LGBTQ, whether it's a woman's right to choose. Those should not be violated by church doctrine making their way into American legislative doctrine. Right. That's what happens, what we see with Sharia law, where the church and the state are one. And you see this in a lot of uh, communities and countries in the Middle East, where it's one and rights are severely diminished. So you're, you're gonna basically turn the American Revolution and all the great documents that came from that backwards. It feels like in this environment, it's like, you know, Two steps forward, three yeah. steps back. Yeah. And you're seeing it in the States too, uh, primarily. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Ohio, for example, has some of the worst, uh, most intrusive laws around abortion and uh, diminishing women's rights. So even at the national level, where we may be at a status quo, hopefully, moving forward, uh, in some of these states, it's, it's brutal and it's going backwards. That brings me to policy change. And um, in 2015, you changed your position on abortion. And in 2012, after the horrendous Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings, you changed your position with the NRA. While some could accuse you of shifting views to match political tides, um, I applaud you for seeing merit, you know, where merit lies and you've taken both progressive and conservative positions what do you say to those who criticize you for vacillating is it vacillating or is it having a willingness to see things differently well i think we all should make decisions based on our experience and you know the older you get uh, experience starts to accumulate and if you continue to keep an open mind, those experiences may change your beliefs. And on those particular issues, they did. I mean, how many, how many school shootings can you see without saying, wait a minute, you know, what's, we have to do something here. Right. I mean, you know, I, I hunt with my son. It's something that we love to do. If you look at many communities across the United States, you know, parents hunt with their kids. It's part of the tradition. That has nothing to do with making sure that a, a criminal or someone who has a mental health issue or a terrorist 
can go out and get a gun, and let alone a gun that is built to kill lots of people in a very quick period of time. Semi-automatic weapon. Yeah, I mean, it's just ridiculous. So watching that happen, like coming from a culture of an appreciation for hunting, at some point I was like, these don't really have anything to do with each other. I can't support the National Rifle Association. They don't even want to come to the table and have a conversation. So all the money I ever got from them, I gave back to Gabby Gifford's group and the other gun control groups um, to really send a signal. Like, look, if you're not even willing to have a conversation, uh, like, I'm out. Right. Uh, and the same happened with, uh, with regard to abortion. I mean, I, I started over the course of my career softening my position because I kept meeting women who were dealt, had to deal with these very difficult and complicated circumstances. And I learned from them and changed my view because the more stories I heard, the more I thought a bunch of dudes in Washington, D.C. should not be in a room with a woman, her husband, and their doctor. So I want to move into money because at the end of the day, money talks. Mm -hmm. And I know that economic well-being is at the core of your platform. I want to know how are you going to assure those living paycheck to paycheck that they're not going to be left behind? We've got to get the economy working in a way that allows those people who want to work hard, play by the rules, to have economic security, healthcare security, retirement security. If that's not working, the opportunity to have those things. And if that's not working, if that part of the economy is not working, then the economy is not working. And we are so far beyond the old metrics or the old ways we used to measure things. Like the unemployment rate is as low as it's ever been. The stock market's as high as it's ever been. But yet almost 50% of Americans cannot withstand a $500 emergency. They have very little in savings for the future, for themselves and for their retirement. We still have people losing pensions. We still have people that can't keep their nose above water economically, mm-hmm. worry about getting health care and all the rest. This is ridiculous in this, in this country. So focusing on an economy that's growing, again, it's not either or, right? You need businesses to be creating jobs in places like Youngstown, Ohio, that pay a good wage. So what are those industries and how do we all move in the same direction around like electric vehicles, for example, where we're going to go from 2 million electric vehicles to 30 million electric vehicles in the next 10 years. Who's going to make those? We need to make those in the United States and we need to have the workers involved and then cut them in on the deal so that they have that economic security um, that they need. These industries are growing at 25 or 30 percent where we sit now, America makes in Youngstown is built around additive manufacturing and 3D printing. There's going to be three to five million jobs created in additive manufacturing in the next five to 10 years. How do we as a country say we're going to dominate this industry and we're going to make sure that the workers are cut in on the deal, that they're trained, that they have access, that we have 3D printers in schools so that we create that pipeline. There's ways to do this that Mm -hmm. it's not brain surgery. It's just us saying, this has got to get done. This has been going on for too long and these poor families have been left out in the cold. 
In The Real Food Revolution, you shed some light on the power of lobbyists. Um, and this, you were referring to the food systems at that point, but you said, one of the reasons it's so hard to change policy is the power of lobbyists in DC on behalf of these corporate interests. For a member of Congress, being lobbied is a daily activity. So I'm sure you're well-versed in this, but how are we gonna cut that lane between Wall Street and DC? My personal opinion is that you have to have publicly financed elections. I think we should do what they do in Europe. I think you shrink the election season to about two months. You have a national conversation for two months where everyone's talking about it. Not like everyone's talking about it every day for two years or four years like right. we do in the United States, but shrink it down. This is the time we're going to decide our leaders. Then we elect them. We make sure everybody has enough money to communicate their message, whether you're running locally or for Congress or Senate or President of the United States. Disclose everything and make sure it's transparent so everybody knows where the money's coming from. And then elect your leaders and then let them fill their term and do their job. Do their job. Right. What concept? Instead, instead of spending all this time <laughs> right. trying to raise money, go out and vote your conscience and you're right. going to be on equal footing for re-election. The problem today is the incumbents, people that are sitting in office now, don't want that because the incumbents have the advantage to go out and raise money because they're the incumbents. They hold the power and so they, they are able to raise that money. So they certainly don't want to mess that system up. But we've got to transform this because whether you look at food, you look at the pharmaceutical industry, you look at you know a lot of what happens uh, within the energy sector, go right down the line, right. uh, undo influence. Mm -hmm. Now here I am saying, look, we got to work with the free enterprise system. We got to work with business. But the power structure has been so tilted towards the 1% of the people who have all the money that it's now poisoned the political process. So I actually just think for a moment, you know, we're taking for granted that we know what this means about lobbyists. Just explain really quickly what happens to a congressman, what a lobbyist is doing on behalf of the corporate interests, just so that it's really clear. You know, there's a lot of lobbyists. So people come down and lobby on behalf of uh, research for autism or, you know, the Easter Seals come down. And I mean, everyone's coming down. So everybody's a lobbyist in their own way. The issue is the money. And what you see from the bigger corporations is they raise a lot of money. Their executives raise a lot of money. They put money in the super PACs, which have unlimited, uh, they can accept unlimited amounts of money. And no one really needs to know where it's coming from. So it's dark money. So the coal industry can write huge checks, put it in the super PAC, and say that President Obama's having a war on coal. Uh, or, you know, other groups who want the system like it is, pharmaceutical industry or whatever, can put money into a big super PAC mm -hmm. and, and run ads against a particular candidate who is going to take on the pharmaceutical industry. That's how it happens. So it's that un, undue influence. Right. But we're in a democracy, so people matter. You're seeing a, a real shift to low-dollar donors today that can fuel a candidate and you get a million people to give you 10 bucks, you have $10 million. And those people who give you 10 bucks can give you another 10 in two, three, four weeks. Right. And now you have another 10 million bucks. And you saw President Obama did this, President Trump did it to a certain extent, Bernie Sanders did it 
to where he didn't even have to have big dollar fundraisers. He was just, he'd send what they call a Bernie bomb. He'd send the email and he would get all this money in. So right. it's moving towards a more grassroots democratization, sort of. grassroots approach to, to this, which I think is really important. So that's why I'm saying, why don't we just ban all this other stuff, right. get the cancer out of the system, get the body politic healthy. Right. Reaching across party lines, socioeconomic, gender, and racial divides, what do you want to say to young voters? And how can we reach them and ensure them that they will be heard and that they will be represented and, 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 and thus get them to the polls? I wouldn't just, I would say a couple things. One, I would say we can do this. This, America has done this before, we can do it again. But it's gonna take them to engage in the system. And it's not just about, you know, we wanna invest into them, right? We wanna make sure they don't have college debt. We wanna make sure that they have opportunity. That's what we collectively wanna to give to our kids, give to the next generation. The other part of that is, we need to challenge them. They need to be the innovators, the entrepreneurs, and I'm not just talking in the private sector around how we're going to decarbonize the economy, how we're going to find new energy systems. They've got to help us invent this stuff. But they also got to get into our schools as teachers and principals and superintendents and innovate our education system, focus more on social and emotional learning, applying what they're learning in school and how the brain works to how we're going to design the future of our classrooms and how we're going to teach kids understanding these new um, techniques and approaches, if they become doctors or nurses, how are they gonna transform the healthcare system? Are they gonna go out and be farmers? And how are they gonna transform the agricultural system? They have to do this. I'm 45 years old, I'm gonna help. My goal in this campaign is to give them a big vision and tools about the direction we need to go in. But ultimately they've gotta come and make it happen. You know, President Kennedy said we're going to the moon and provided the resources on how we were going to get there. But at the end of the day, it was a bunch of really smart engineers that worked for both NASA and in the private sector that got us there. So our job is to set the challenge, mm -hmm. set the vision, provide the resources and some of the inspiration, but ultimately it's the American people that got to get it done. And if this generation doesn't get it done, we may be so far behind the eight ball that it's going to be tough to tough to catch back up. Also, understanding the interconnectedness of it, how what they do and what they think and where they show up matters. Yeah. And it matters for the whole. Matters for the whole. Know? Yeah. So clearly, throwing your hat into the ring, um, this is not just a decision that affects you. And I was wondering, you know, what that conversation was like when you and Andrea sat down and, and you actually said, okay, we're, you know, we're going for this. And what was the conversation like with your kids? And, and what, what, what was like inside you that fundamentally said, I've got to do this? So at one point, Bella, our 15 year old daughter, uh, said to me, you have got to do this. And I said, why Bella? And she said, do you see what he's doing to our country? We live with, the job loss. When General Motors closes, we know the people that work there. Bella called me one time on the phone. I was in a plane 
and she was crying at school with this girl whose dad got transferred out of General Motors when they closed the plant. And Bella calls me and you got to do something about this. Doesn't get more real than that. That's right? that's real stuff that my family goes through, and we live through this stuff. And so they know that I understand deeply on what people are going through and what we got to do to fix it. And so they're all on board with going down this road and we're going to try to find ways to incorporate them into the campaign. But we live with this. My wife's dad lost his job at Youngstown Sheet and Tube 40 years ago when the original mill closed here that led to the cascading effect of 40 years of decline. And I feel passionate about getting in this race and delivering a message on behalf of all of those people who've been watching this 30-year train wreck, 40-year train wreck happen to families that we care about. And, And maybe it's time for somebody from a community like this to actually be in the most powerful position in the country to say this is unacceptable and this isn't going to happen again. So... To piggyback onto that, what makes you the right candidate? I believe that I have a very unique experience compared to everybody else in the field, who are all really great people. I've lived in this area in Northeast Ohio for 45 years. I've watched communities like ours get disconnected from the global economy, disconnected from growth, disconnected from new waves of technology, and the federal government not really care. And I've spent my entire career trying to reassemble a new economy here locally. So I understand what communities are going through. I understand what families are going through because when when we lose factory jobs here, It's my family members. It's my friends. When businesses close, I know who they are. But I also know what the future needs are. I know because I've been studying it to help my area. And what I've come to realize over the last 17 years in Congress is that if all of these communities who have suffered don't come together and set a national agenda, that these communities are going to continue to to struggle. We're going to be able to move forward slowly, but we're not going to have the kind of transformational change that we need. And I will use every ounce of power that the American people would give me as president of the United States to move the levers of government on behalf of the working class, to plug them back in, to make sure that there's not so many sleepless nights about, am I going to get my pension? Am Am I going to be able to get my kid health care? Can I send my kid to college? The government needs to make sure that that level of pain and consistency of pain doesn't happen. But what I also love about your message, and I want to be clear about it, although this is for the plight of the working class American, again, going back to this notion of interconnectedness, you do see the big picture and you support the whole picture. It's not just a slice of that pie. It's not just the working class. You understand what an integral role that plays, but you also, again, can't talk about healthcare if we're not going to talk about health. We want to talk about the working class, but we also want a thriving economy. We want a thriving Wall Street. We want a government that's speaking to each other. I want to make sure that that people don't peg you as you know just um, providing your interest in one sector. 
Well, it's as you said, it's interconnected, and we've got to be functioning on all cylinders. I mean, right. we we had in the in the sixties, we talked a little bit about you know going to the moon. We had the Sputnik moment, right, where the Russians were ahead of us in the space race, and so we had the Sputnik moment. We've got to beat the Russians to to the moon. If you look at the political landscape, the economic landscape, the cultural landscape today, we need about seven Sputnik moments all at the same time on climate, on healthcare, on wages, on uh, job security, uh, on energy, on our foreign policy, like across the board on opiates. We've got all of these challenges that, that we have to address all at the same time. We don't have the luxury to put them in the list. Say, oh, we'll do this one today and work on this one for a year. And then we'll go to the, no, all now. And, and that can only happen if we come together. Right. There, there's no way we're going to be Essential. able to meet these challenges. They're too big. They're right. too big. Oh, we're going to do this without the private sector. Oh, we're going to do this without the government. Oh, we're going to do this without black people or brown people or gay people or you know, a new influx of immigrants who are bringing new ideas and job creation. No. So if you could wave a magic wand <clears throat> across this nation right now, what would your vision of America 2.0 look like? What would it, what would it be? Our cities would be clean and fresh and new. Uh, we would take down the dilapidated homes that mark many neighborhoods across the United States. We would have a new infrastructure. We would be an economy that was really contributing to reversing climate change and had the coolest technologies to be able to decarbonize and provide renewable energy and efficient, clean energy. We would have schools that focused on caring about our kids first and foremost and dealing with their trauma and then providing them opportunities to thrive with whatever lane they wanted to go in through art, through music, through dance, give kids those opportunities. Communities where you could walk and have a high quality of life, enjoy, you know, just take the tempo down a little bit. I think everybody's just a little fed up with the pace, the speed, the lack of connection, the lack of time together, you know, create an environment where, you know, we're a mindful nation where we have time to connect with each other. You know, at the end of the day, people just want an opportunity to have a good life. And I know that, that we can give it to them if we get our act together. All right, here's the magic wand. <laughs> I like that vision. <laughs> So, Tim Ryan, you are a bright light in the body politic, and I applaud you, my friend, for getting up off your mat and stepping into the world Thank and throwing you. your hat into the ring, for walking the walk and talking the healing talk, and for holding a, a vision for this nation, a healing vision, and for understanding the interconnectedness, for honoring that, and for really celebrating this notion that, you know, united we stand and divided we fall. Yeah. And I thank your family because I also know that this is a tremendous sacrifice for them as well. They share you with the American people as it is already, right? Yeah. Aside from 
Good luck. I thought maybe, you know, in a couple of years we could redo this in the Oval Office. That's a done deal. <laughs> That's an absolute done deal. <laughs> that would be great. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Learn more at bestselfmedia.com.